Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Josh Galecki. And today we're talking about Elden Ring, developed by From Software and published by Bandai Namco. The game was released for PS4, PS5, Windows, Xbox, of all varieties, on February 25th of 2022. And we'll be talking spoilers, so just a heads up if you are sensitive to that. This was a very hotly anticipated game, and one that finally convinced me to upgrade my laptop. <laughs> hey, and uh, yeah, I guess uh, Risey Tarnished, because it's time for us to head to the Lands Between. Um, I am pretty excited, you know, uh, a few hundred hours of combined playtime between the two of us. I think we can safely say um, this game's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I know, Brian, you've beaten us twice. Um, I've gotten up to the snowy lands. That's the final non-spoiler kind of thing we'll do here. Um, But I've played it. I actually played this game with two characters. The first character I got about 50 hours in. And I'm like, this is so much fun. I need to start a new character, (laughs) which I did, which was great. Um, I don't know. It made sense in the moment. Yeah, I found that to be an odd choice, but you know what? Go with God. Um, the the interesting thing is like this game does like respect your ability to respec pretty well. So I don't know. I don't know exactly what that was all about. Maybe it was just like I need to relearn this from the start, which also I totally get. But um, yeah, he'll have to tell me more about that as we go. But I think one of the reasons we're playing this game is because in a year of big games, this is probably the biggest. <laughs> um, <laughs> very, very possible both in terms of anticipation and in terms of how damn big the thing is. Yeah, I think, to be perfectly frank, I think one of my, like, and I have very few of these complaints with this game, is that it might be too big. Um, I think <laughs> I think they just tacked on, like, maybe one too many continents, um, but it is kind of a delight just how generous this game is in, in many regards, not just in terms of pure, like, content given, but in terms of, like, given the series history, um, the shift it's made to being a little bit more generous towards its players. Yeah, and I think this will be interesting to talk about, but I think there's some fundamental game design reasons why this game seems more generous, because I don't think it's any more easy in terms of how the combat is, which is, you know, what uh, Dark Souls was famous for, kind of hung its flag on combat difficulty yeah i think you're absolutely right like i don't think there is any more difficulty here than any of the other games in the soulsborne sort of extended universe your souls your bloodborns your sekiros um i think it's just as hard um or just as you know not not any more difficult we'll put it that way um especially i i think where it comes what it comes down to and and you were probably going to get at this there this is it just gives you a lot more latitude to go abroad rather than forcing you into an encounter you're not ready for or you know aren't set up for in the moment oh absolutely and like we played dark souls for this podcast um a couple years ago maybe mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but i do remember that game had a very hub and spoke sort of thing that once you knew about how to get around, if you were playing the game a second time, it was very useful. But the kind of the main path was quite linear, and it felt like, okay, here's where you need to be going next. They would point it to you very directly, and uh, when you get to that boss that's frustrating you, you just 
bang your head against that boss until you break through. Um, Elden Scrolls, which is an open world game, has other things to do. I've Elden Scrolls, Elden Ring. You know, <laughs> 120 hours into this game, I'll probably learn the title soon. I mean, honestly, Freudian Slip is uh, pretty warranted in that regard. You know, obviously this game is taking a lot of inspiration from other open world games, uh, some of which may be in the Elder or the Elder Scrolls series. I almost did it too. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, seriously though, I think maybe we talk a little bit about that and sort of where this game came from and, um, you know, why it is how it is. And um, some of that has to do with the fact that, hey, we want to make um, a Souls-like, but it's open world, a la Elder Scrolls. But another is uh, FromSoft approaching famed author George R. R. Martin um, to provide some world-building consulting. And actually, it turns out he ended up writing sort of a lot of the backstory that um, sort of sets the stage for Elden Ring. As a longtime uh, Game of Thrones fan, you know, the show, the books, all that, uh, when I first heard he was signing on for this project, I was both excited to see a video game with his work on it, and also a little sad because that just means Winds of Winter will never come out. <laughs> I uh, liked especially like the article I found that talked about how they approached him uh, was Miyazaki saying he hoped Martin's contributions would produce a more accessible narrative than the studio's previous games, to which I had to say, LOL. <laughs> um, I don't I don't find this game's narrative particularly approachable. I do find it interesting and I do definitely sense the George R. R. Martin influence on it, especially in sort of how um, you know, they have this pantheon of gods who are always backbiting and um, you know, holding grudges and they have faults as people. Like there is no sort of paragon in this game as there rarely are in in FromSoft games, but even more so now. Like I do think the the Thrones influence is seen in the Pantheon and in the characters in general of, of Elden Ring. Another thing I heard with um, they're approaching Martin to be the author for this, or for parts of this, was that they restricted him to the backstory lore of the game. So if he did spend six years writing the story for this, it wouldn't hold up production so much. <laughs> I like that. And I also think that, you know, it, it makes sense because there's a lot of things that they seem to have developed, like having looked into a lot of sort of, uh, you know, YouTubers that do data mining and stuff like that. You know, they initially had certain enemies named a certain thing, and then it seems to have shifted as the story started to take shape a bit more. Um, but speaking of development, this really started development way back in 2017 and was actually developed alongside Sekiro. Um, which we also covered for the podcast um, a few years back. Uh, Clint and I covered that one. And I really think it's interesting how Sekiro and this game influenced each other. Obviously, this game came out a while after Sekiro was done, but I do think that I see a lot of, surprisingly, see a lot of the DNA from Sekiro here, especially in terms of their range from an artistic perspective and their ability to sort of add additional traversal mechanics into um, what used to be a pretty... You know, if there's a waist-high wall, you're not jumping over it, Souls formula. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't jump over a waist-high wall. No one can. <laughs> I mean... Wait, no man can jump over a waist-high wall. <laughs> it's a good thing you are no man. You are a tarnished. Uh, but more on that later. Um, I do feel like, you know, I, I really 
do feel like a lot of different influences in this game. And I, I you know, uh, having played all of the FromSoft catalog from Demon Souls on at this point, like it does feel like they're kind of taking a lot of ideas that were maybe not fully developed in older games, bringing them back and fleshing them out more in this one. And um, in, in, in addition to that, all of the stuff from like the Elder Scrolls and the Witcher 3 and notably Zelda Breath of the Wild seems to have been a gigantic influence on this game from at least what I see. How so? So from my perspective, uh, you could see the Breath of the Wild DNA one in the incredible sort of lack of direction you're given. I know the the grace, you know, there is this golden line in Elden Ring that is supposedly guiding you towards your ultimate fate, but you are free to ignore it. The map is remarkably open from the very beginning. You can take a hard right or east into Kaled, an area that you probably won't be accessing for another 30 hours when you're ready for it. Or, you know, there are bosses that you can completely bypass. Like, the game really plays up. You need to go to Stormvale and beat Godric. You do not, in fact, need to do that. Um, you can just go around the side of the castle, sneak past it, and into, like, uh, Lyernia of the Lakes without fighting so much as anyone. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, th- there's surprisingly little you do need to do on the main uh, critical path of Elden Ring to get to the end of it. Um, and I think it's very much up to you how much of it you end up doing. And I think in that regard, that and sort of how the mechanical systems are much more open and, um, you know, from a build perspective and, you know, interchangeable and able to be, you know, adjusted to the player's liking, you know, many different ways to approach a situation rather than, um, ironically, the game's direct predecessor, Sekiro, which kind of just had, you know, one very specific tool in your your belt and it was a katana <laughs> and you know maybe some <laughs> other side weapons but that that game was very prescriptive on how your character progression worked and i think elden ring is more in the breath of the wild uh, lineage in that regard from what i've heard yeah sekiro was a lot tighter of a scope in terms of gameplay whereas elden ring i think one word that could describe it would be sprawling yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> it's uh, it's sprawling, it's flexible, and it's, I guess, non-prescriptive, to uh, almost to a fault. <laughs> hmm. But um, maybe we should talk a little bit about um, how that sort, or what exactly you're doing with all of this openness and, and why it is uh, so open the way it is. And I guess there's no better way to do that than let's talk about that backstory that George R. R. Martin wrote for it. The only thing that is set in stone when you start the game. <laughs> <laughs> so Elden Ring takes place in a landmass called the Lands Between, and it is ruled over by several demigods, although it was previously ruled over by an immortal queen, America, who uh, basically disappeared. She shattered something called the Elden Ring and left. And all of her children started fighting over pieces of that Elden Ring, which represented power. Um, As I mentioned, lots of backbiting and fighting and um, basically being so consumed with the quest for this uh, shattered pieces of Elden Ring rather than power that the whole place went to shit. And uh, as at the end of that, um, they all became pretty much corrupted and unable to continue to uphold the land. Uh, there was a great war launch to hopefully consolidate all the power of those pieces of the Elden Ring. No one ended up winning that. Everyone continues to just sort of hold on to their own peace selfishly. And that is where you enter. You are what is called a tarnished, uh, one who is dead, summoned back from um, beyond the grave. Uh, basically, your job is to traverse the realm, 
uh, repair the Elden Ring, whatever that means, and become the Elden Lord. Kind of a new big boss in town once you finish all of that. I thought that was also pretty interesting. Um, There's kind of a higher divinity figure called the Greater Will, who's supposed to kind of direct how everything's going um there's the two fingers which are a giant hand with two fingers who are um on kind of one side of this war and trying to follow the greater will i think there's this three fingers quest line that i didn't follow but you can follow them and make everyone go crazy instead um but i think one of my favorite bits of the backstory was the erd tree this gigantic golden tree sprouting up in the middle of the land mass where the game's climax i think eventually takes place um and just i've never seen trees be so threatening as this one i liked it i dug the you know you're getting stopped by the knights of the tree and everything like that it is um an imposing figure and i think it's worth mentioning right off the bat that the open world in this game at least at the start, is intensely striking and and can be almost beautiful. It's like if the apocalypse was heaven, kind of. (laughs) Um, Because you have this gorgeous, you mentioned the Erd tree, you know, this gigantic glowing tree, um, just a celestial presence over everything in the world. And you can't help but notice it as soon as you see the sky for the first time because it completely dominates the skyline. And as you Mm -hmm. mentioned, Josh, it is not only imposing and threatening, but it's otherworldly, and explicitly so. It is definitely from another world in the same way that the outer gods are not of this realm. So is the Erd tree, um, as is mentioned in some of the, the deeper lore. But I think I did hear the, it mentioned that the Erd tree has a will too. Mm-hmm. There are several factions in this game, you know, one of which is the golden order, which sort of serves to preserve the order of the Erd tree. Um, and the Erd tree basically is, as I understand it, you know, I, I'm going to shoot from the hip a little bit here, but sort of a, a symbol of the cycle of life and death and rebirth. And when most people's souls die, they go into the Erd tree and, you know, they continue the cycle when they are reborn. Um, there are certain people in the realms for whom this is not true. And basically the shit hitting the fan in the lands between sort of hinges on the fact that one of the movers and shakers, Rani, stole the rune of death and um now no one dies in the realm anymore hence the you coming back as a tarnished and and seeking to be the elden lord i think i got far enough along in this quest line um but i believe what's happening is i think it's the erd tree that froze the movement of the stars or maybe did that through general radon because it ends when general radon dies um but the stars aren't moving anymore and like rennie is trapped inside this destiny because the stars aren't moving and that's like where she's getting her power from that's right yeah um i don't recall the exact reasoning for it but you are correct in that radon was the one who sort of froze the stars in place and you know when you end up finally beating radon who we'll talk more about later radon being one of the rich family tree of gods demigods and other important people that we are definitely not going to have the time to dive into here but um yeah he is Uh, He froze the stars in place and sort of your undoing him undoes that and things start to shift once again in the celestial bodies, which in turn have their effects on the the lands between. Well, let's talk a little bit more about those lands between. Um, This is the open world from soft game is how I pitch it. And that open (laughs) world is wow. 
yeah, it's um, it's large. I think that's the first thing that comes to mind when I when I think about the lands between. You know, it, it's one of those things where that I keep remembering that just continued to strike me about how huge this world is. Is every time I thought the map was done expanding, you know, when you press your select button and the map comes up, I thought it was done expanding after the first few times I I found a new piece of the map, and then all of a sudden I would hit like a teleporter trap and see that oh I'm I'm twice as far away as I was before and the map is mm-hmm. literally four times as big as I expected it to be and just every time the game pulls this sort of trick I was continually just blown away by just how much pure volume of space there was there and I felt like it was always equally cared for except maybe up to the very end where things started to get a, a bit more sparse but it really is and it really is quite a feat yeah, I, this. I know what you mean about the map too, because you start off and um, you're playing in an area called uh, Limgrave. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start off and you eventually find the map for the western half of that, and you open it up. And you're like, oh, okay, you know, this is. It's a very full area. Like this game is absurdly full of things. Um, like just that first area of Limgrave, you feel like that would be a third or a half of another game. Uh, (laughs) Just so many dungeons, bosses, secret passages, hidden twisty ways to go through. Um, Just all the sorts of different things you can find. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you you immediately have uh, just a a huge variety of different things that you can um, look into, as you mentioned, Josh. Like, obviously, the game starts by pointing you along the quote-unquote path of grace. It's literally these golden sparkles that lead you from Sight of Grace, a.k.a. Bonfire in the Soul's parlance, um, to Bonfire, you know, save points, places where you refill your health and the enemies respawn. But you can deviate from that whenever you want. And, you know, players... It's basically letting the player sort of take ownership of their own experience. There's no quest except follow the path of grace until its eventual endpoint. And very quickly, if you're doing that, you're going to run into a brick wall. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, along the way, they they quickly sort of introduce a couple key characters and things. One is Melina, your maiden. Um, She basically, they say that uh, you cannot follow, you cannot become the Elden Lord with maiden. You start off maidenless. Lots of jokes have been made about being maidenless. Um, But you're you're not maidenless for long, and and Melina comes along, and she gives you um, a whistle. And that whistle summons the world's greatest horse, Torrent. Torrent is amazing, especially for a world this large. Um, he's a double jumping horse, which <laughs> if that's been done before, it hasn't been done better. Absolutely. Than my boy Torrent. Yeah, I like Torrent for so many reasons. Um, one is because, as you mentioned, Josh, you know, in, at a moment's notice, you can uh, immediately get a huge boost to your traversal of this gigantic map. Two, it adds... Um, a great deal of sort of navigation puzzles. Um, you know, you can do a lot with a double jumping horse in, in terms of like leaping up cliffs or leaping across chasms or leaping down from places. You can even get over those chest high walls. That's right. The 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 chest high wall taboo has been broken in the lands between. <laughs> the Golden Order will not stand for chest high walls. Um, <laughs> but I think the you know there there are many other things that the torn is good for, but I think even from a story perspective, 
Torrent is seen to have been uh, wiser than your typical horse in that Torrent is initially the one that sniffs you out, literally, when you um, enter the lands between and get your ass utterly kicked, most likely, by the first uh, enemy you encounter, the Grafted Scion. Um, mm mm-hmm. And I like how Torin always has your back, literally from the start of the game. He he never doubted <laughs> you, and, and he's always there for you. Uh, and he's good, very useful riding that horse around as you're finding merchants along beachside or wherever you're uh, going into dungeons. You can't take him into dungeons, but you can take him, you know, traverse everything around there. If you're assaulting a fort or trying to get across a bridge, um, you know, he's right there with you. Or the uh, third major component, I think, of the environmental stuff is the legacy dungeons where you fight the bigger bosses. Not, um, but worth mentioning before we move on from Torrent, he's super useful for running the hell away from enemies too, um, which you will be doing often. Um, from my experience, especially in Kaled, um, I always found myself running away from things in Kaled. Maybe that's just a Kaled thing. But... Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's one of the reasons why this game didn't feel... As you know, it, it didn't feel as punishing as Dark Souls, is you had a much easier means of escape in many situations. Totally. Yes. The overworld is you're imminently able to disengage in the overworld. Even like you could run into a dragon suddenly and, you know, be able to hightail it out of there. You do run into a dragon suddenly and then you hightail it out of there. <laughs> yes. Most likely you hightail it out of there. If you don't, you hightail it into being fried to a crisp, probably. <laughs> yes uh those who run into dragons unprepared seldom live to tell the tale <laughs> very true um but yeah so uh, the as you were going into josh the second i guess major component uh, aside from the overworld is all of the various types of dungeons and you know we mentioned running into caves and mines and crypts uh, i think those are kind of the three major uh, flavors of of overworld dungeon and they are all mod you know generally speaking different but you know they hold a similar palette but then there are legacy dungeons which are an entirely different beast and i think these to me basically read as like the soul the the souls shining through into elden ring like these are basically from soft souls like games inside of Elden Ring. <laughs> yeah, each one is almost this self-contained area, and each one has its own secrets to uncover, um, ways to get around and maneuver, shortcuts, you know, ladders to get down and everything. Classic Dark Souls move, kicking the ladder down. That's right. The game becomes a ladder kicker. <laughs> <laughs> All of these uh, dungeons, of which I think I went through three, three myself i'm not counting general radon's because it was empty when i got there and i felt cheated out of that one um but all of these are very intricate kind of dungeon sort of things like these normal dungeons they're they're great as kind of like uh appetizers like you get through one in 20 to 30 minutes generally speaking which is actually really great as like a oh you know i I want to play some Elden Ring tonight. I don't know how much time I'm going to have, so I'm just going to do a quick little thing here. The dungeons worked so great for that. I really liked how the game had the ability to vary up the things you can do on a given play session. And one thing we didn't mention that makes this imminently possible is that fast travel is always available. This is an underrated decision, given that most FromSoft games do not allow you to fast travel at will. 
you can fast travel immediately between any site of grace. And Josh, to your point, a small dungeon may take you up to a half an hour, a bigger dungeon up to an hour. And then these legacy dungeons, you know, a few hours at most, you know, including clearing out the boss and finding a bunch of secrets. And that allows you to really like tailor your experience to your playtime. I think like weirdly, I've always harped on the Souls series for like not being very accommodating to someone like me, a new parent who needs to ditch at a moment's notice. And I still think that mm. this game could be better about that. But it's definitely no more pause button, right? Yes. God, they still haven't fixed the pause button thing. There are <laughs> games that do this. We've talked about it before. I won't continue to harp on it, but please, FromSoft, pause button. Anyway, um, as I was saying, I think this game is a lot more accommodating with the level of involvement you need to have at any given play session. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, it's a great way, you know, you can do a string of dungeons. You can just do a quick thing. Um, you can do, you can take as much game as you want out of a session mm-hmm. and yeah. still feel like you've gotten something done because each of the dungeons does have a nice reward behind it. Yeah. I thought this was really nice and, and interesting in that the, the game, as you mentioned, Josh is absurdly full of things. And, the reason for that is that it has a reward economy that makes sure that everything you get feels um, meaningful. You know, as you mentioned, even the smallest dungeon, you will find um, something that will either affect your build or give you an idea about a build you may have in the future. And what I think this does is it answers a very um, tricky question in open world game design, which is, what do we reward players with? What is in the chest at the end of the dungeon? And there's a lot of different ways to approach li- approach this. Breath of the Wild basically said, let's give them weapons because what we're going to do is we're going to have weapons break. So every time you find a, a chest in Breath of the Wild, a lot of times it'll be a weapon and they become a resource that you use to basically participate in combat. I didn't think that was super elegant and that basically what it did was disincentivize combat, which, you know, maybe that was the idea. Um, but Elden Ring chose to fill those chests with Ashes of War, with new weapons, and with uh, basically summons, uh, spirit ashes. And what I really like about that is those abilities, those Ashes of War, you can assign to weapons yourself, and they also can be freely swapped between weapons. So you basically, every time you get one of those, they're not only useful in a single situation. You're sort of immediately exponentially expanding your character's verb set every time you get one of those ashes of war less so for spirit ashes whereas you know if it's someone that's not useful to you you're probably not going to use it but i really like what they did here it's a unique treat every time you complete a dungeon and the uniqueness you know seeing the content that's kind of what i'm here for generally speaking like that is my gamer psychographic i just want to see the content i'm not here for mastery necessarily i'm not here for high scores i'm here to because i want to see the place i want to i'm a tourist in this in the lands between and i want to see the best it has to offer no for sure and that has so much to offer too how many legacy dungeons are there in the game i think there's at least five right volcano manor oh radon's if you don't go through the festival sequence I think radon's to me is like a, a tear down from that i would say it's like a castle like castle morn or um uh, Castle Height or something like that. But yeah, I mean, the ones that come to mind for me are Stormvale, Raya Lucaria, um, Academy, basically Harry Potter Town. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> really sick uh, 
twisted Harry Potter town. Volcano Manor, a favorite. Leyendel, the big one, you know, the royal capital. Crumbling Faramazula, you did not see that one. And Mikola's Haggle Tree, which is, yeah, I guess one, two, three, four, five, six uh, are okay. the big ones. Yeah. One thing that I don't want to skip over discussing is those castles, the forts, the enemy encampments. Honestly, I think looking back, this was one of my favorite parts of the game was not when they threw a huge boss at you and you had to figure out, you know, what's the boss's move set? What's going on? When can I go in and attack myself? But rather they're throwing at you enemies, generally enemies that, you know, oftentimes, you know, the army dudes, the soldiers with the shields, the knights, just Um, men, (laughs) just men. Uh, but they throw them at you in different combinations. Like, oh, now there's archers up on the walls here. Oh, now there's like a ballista that's pointed at you. Or, um, you know, these these guys are going to come out from behind you. Or, oh, there's a knight on a horse coming at you. And the configurations of enemies and uh, the encampments and the terrain really had some interesting tactical situations develop out of it. Like I was surprised how far they could ride the same basic set of enemies and still have it be so enjoyable. Uh, they did a really great job with the level design on these. Yeah, I, I agree. Cause you know, by and large, I really appreciate how off the wall and crazy the enemy design can get in these games. Like I think there are just a ton of really interesting novel and you know, enemy designs you wouldn't see in any other series or game but you're right josh in that even when you're just dealing with dudes just army men just guys with shields and spears and swords and bows um they have such a a great way of designing encounters level design like they have the fill a castle with dudes and make you storm it thing down to a t um and it is (laughs) it is on display here like you could just give me a new castle like the shaded castle or castle morn or something like that every week for the rest of my life and i will happily play it (laughs) (laughs) oh for sure for sure and the enemy you know i think um thinking about the combat design of all these enemies too like uh, i know both of us restarted playing this game again in the last day or two And something that struck me, even about the enemies you face off at the very beginning, is they all have move sets. Like, they don't just have, uh, here's a spear guy, he does a spear poke. Uh, He does a poke, he does a swing, he does a power kind of attack. I mean, you go up from your grunts to your elites, and the elites have more variety. Mm -hmm. Uh, But even the basic guys have some variety to how they're doing things. Uh, this is really well observed, and I think another thing that I love about that is almost every move that you see a humanoid enemy do, you can do. Like, you will find an Ash of War to let you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually, it's from the enemy that is doing it, um, <laughs> which is also cool. Like, I'm thinking of um, rescuing the castle for Kenneth Height back in um, Lingrave. And you fight a knight on the top of the parapet and he does the bloody slash on you and it just kicks your ass. Like you immediately go down to like a quarter health because it's a very powerful move and you're an early game character probably. Um, you kill that guy, you get the bloody slash and you bet your ass I equipped it immediately and was very thrilled <laughs> to be able to use it on, on the enemies I saw from there on out. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
even the dudes, like the just the guys, the army guys, very interesting move sets, and they'll have special moves that you can acquire yourselves. Um, but uh, yeah, there'll be like special enemies, like this knight has bloody slash, or there's the uh, great bow guy mm-hmm. in that one Caled fort who snipes you forever, and then you <laughs> finally get him, and you're like, ah, oh, that's so good. Yeah, it it does it is. Uh... It is always very cathartic. I think this game deals in catharsis for killing annoying enemies, um, you know, in in a a big, bad way. Um, And I think, you know, that's not the only point of of satisfaction in the game, though. I think there's also sort of like getting through a tough area and going to a finding a site of grace and finally being able to feel that sense of relief, you know finally hitting the bonfire. We talked about this when we talked Dark Souls 2, you know, finally getting to a place of safety. What's worth mentioning for those who haven't played any of the Dark Souls games is that you collect experience points from each of the enemies you kill, but you can't spend them until you get to a bonfire or a site of grace. Um, so if you die on the way to safety, to to these sites of grace, your corpse uh goes away but the runes remain the experience points remain and you have one chance to grab them before you die again um which is why it's kind of like this great kind of tension and this uh you know the a lot of tension is building up while you're carrying a lot around and then oh you see the side of grace i can spend the runes they're safe now it's a it's a good cycle there it really is. Um, it it it's so interesting because um, this is only the second game in the mainline Soul series where you can spend um, runes in this case at any site of grace to level up. Um, in Dark Souls Two, you had to travel to a specific place. In Bloodborne, you had to travel back to a specific place, the Hunter's Dream. Um, I think even in Dark Souls Three, you had to travel back to um, the Firelink Shrine in that game. So. You know, obviously, I think this is a good choice. It's funny to me that you're playing Dark Souls and then Dart <laughs> directly to Elden Ring. They're the only two that, that have done this exact thing. Um, but maybe speaking of that sort of main hub area, you know, I mentioned Firelink Shrine, Majula. In this game, your hub area, the place where you uh, sort of have your home base, is called the Round Table Hold. And the round table hold is full of tarnished, like you, people who are searching through the lands between for the pieces or the shards of the Elden Ring, uh, the shard bearers, uh, the big bosses that you are tasked with taking down on your way to become Elden Lord. And lots of interesting characters filter in and out of this place throughout the course of the game. Um, And it doesn't end up that way. It ends up uh, empty, sad, and burning. Uh, More on that later. But... um, (laughs) You know, for the time being and for most of the game, this is like where you're checking in on your NPC friends, at least the ones that, um, generally speaking, have uh, big quest quests to give. Quick question about that, without getting too far into the Lord dumping mode. Um, I know that in the capital, there was like the round table hold building. It was the same building, but empty and abandoned, but the same layout. Um was that like spiritually linked to the one you go visit? I honestly do not have an explanation for that. I, I never looked up the lore of why the round table hold seems to be like a pocket dimension that all tarnished can go to. That seems to be an exact replica of a place in the capital. Um, but that's my understanding of it is it's a pocket dimension that looks like a real place in the real world. <laughs> Cause you mentioned it is eventually burning. And I know that the capital is eventually burning too. Right. 
and I think that that to me like means it's like somehow linked to the the physical place but maybe it's like a spiritual realm you know given that the tarnished have this sort of half dead half alive aspect to them they're continually reborn like that's you know that's why you die and you're able to come back i guess um the souls games are definitely in love with having a diegetic reason for why you can die and load and save and you know start over again when most people can't and i think this probably is like an aspect of that i don't have like the the lore reason for what the round table hold actually is but that's how i'm reading it And when you're leaving the roundtable hold, you best believe that you are uh, heading out into the world to engage in some very intense combat. I love the combat in this game. I've actually loved the combat in Dark Souls, too. There's so much craft and care taken into account in things like where the hitboxes are, the direction that they're going in. Uh, Like, I think Dark Souls was a game where... I found out that one of the enemies had a weak underbelly, which makes a lot of sense. But when the hell does that get modeled in a video game? Very true. Yeah, the it, they're all about detail with this. Like, it's very uh, precise. It's very, the hitboxes are always impeccable. And they're varied uh, extensively from model to model. As you mentioned, like certain areas will be weaker than others. You can bet if an enemy has a hard shell on one side, you're going to hit for next to nothing on that side. <laughs> <laughs> and Elden Ring, like Dark Souls before, it has a very specific style of combat too. Uh, there's no animation canceling. If you hit a button to do a heavy attack, you're going to do a heavy attack. Uh, there's no rolling out of it or making things feel more responsive to the players. The combat in the game becomes a very timing and rhythm-based sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It it It's all about sort of reading your enemy, reacting to how they're about to move. And you're right that you're not going to cancel out of an animation, but you sure as hell are going to get knocked out of it. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the, the way you get canceled. You get hit in the head. <laughs> that's right. Um, and to that end, um, you know, this game has a stat in it that... Um, hasn't directly been referenced since uh, Dark Souls 1, but has always been present in the background, and that is poise. As I mentioned, um, if you have a high poise in, in Elden Ring, you can absorb a number of hits, you know, be they smaller or larger, before an animation, like say a heavy attack that you're trying to do, is canceled. So a high poise can let you sort of tank a couple blows and complete your animation hitting the enemy before you are knocked on your ass. <laughs> I believe poise, yeah, not just canceling animations, but also staggering opponents too. That's right. Enemies have poise as well. And if you break their poise, you have a chance to do a critical strike, you know, stab them in the gut or something like that. Um, There's also um, jumping attacks, which do even more poise damage than even your normal or heavy attacks. Uh, This game makes it extremely easy to do jumping attacks because it has a jump button uh basically i think this is the first <laughs> time in the soul series that there's a jump button uh there were no jump buttons in dark souls one two or three and i really like this addition like being able to use jump as another dodge verb as well as like an attack verb was super helpful like i don't know about you but i i feel like i dodged just as many attacks jumping as i did rolling <laughs> i never jumped to dodge anything i was always jumping to 
you know, it preceded my uh, attack coming down at them. But I have seen videos, you know, these crazy guys going up and one hitting bosses or something like that. Um, I've saw jumping being used in interesting ways. And I'm like, oh, that was a verb I did not know existed in that fashion. It definitely took me a little while to adjust to that. Like I would say in my first playthrough, I barely jumped aside from like the very specific timed jumping attack with my, my, uh, in that first playthrough was a magic user and I eventually got the moonlight greatsword. So yeah, I started using jumping attacks with that by the end. But in my second playthrough, I was a claymore gal from the start. And, uh, you best believe I was not only jump attacking, but jumping out of the way in addition to rolling. And, you know, it, it really did like become a verb that I relied on compared to, um, compared to my earlier time with the game. That's interesting. That's interesting. It's see, I went the other way around. My first character was sword and board. Um, and then I, my next one was a mage character. So by the time I got into the systems, I was like, Whoa, stay away from me. I'm going to roll out of the way, roll backwards. (laughs) It was interesting that both melee and magic felt so different though because you could use this, you know, spells as a magic user, ranged attacks versus the melee getting in there and going rough and tumble. Magic became about managing distance and timings between things. And I feel like when I was a magic user, I wouldn't have to memorize the attack patterns as well because I could ju- I just have to be like, okay, I'm out of range of this one. Whereas playing as a melee guy, you have to be like, okay, it's coming down. This is a vertical attack right now. It's coming down this way. I can dodge to the side or something like that. You have to know them better. I think for magic users, to me, it became more important to understand the timing it would take to get a spell off and what I needed to do to make sure it hit. Because a lot of spells, like the enemy will try and dodge. The AI is smart enough that if you just cast a glintstone, um, a glintstone pebble or something like that, like the enemy will just dodge out of the way of it. And so it became important to either find spells that homed or spells that had off timing. There is one spell that when you cast it, it'll then suddenly have a delayed... I think the prisoner starts with this spell. I can't remember the name of it. Oh yeah, carry on sword. Yeah, carry on something. But um, I don't know if it was a sword, but basically it um, it casts a spell. And then a few seconds later, it, uh, Glintstone comes out of a portal from behind the enemy or something like that. Oh, this was like my best spell this is my bread and butter (laughs) because um you could easily get to the enemy's underbelly with it Mm -hmm. because um you know they're keeping their shield pointed at you the whole time you cast it it's delayed you have them walk in front of it and then boom right in the backside yeah fantastic spell and this yeah like you said this sort of like played havoc with bosses that would normally just dodge out of the way um lovely spell for uh, uh aspiring arcane user to um, to make use of. Um, I can't remember the name of it, though. <laughs> uh, carry on Glint Sword, I think. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I will take your word for it, because it sounds like you used it more extensively than me. <laughs> there was a thing you mentioned about poise, though, that what I made me think that there was a really interesting element to add to it, this kind of staggered defense, if you will, because a lot of games will model that the tank is the tank because he has a lot of hit points and the mage is mage because poor hit points, poor defense. 
but really like the mage can be bashed and punched in the face a lot more effectively and interrupted poise yeah the interruptibility is another great stat to model for that yeah you're absolutely right like the ability to withstand a punch in the face and keep hitting is just as important as the ability to withstand the punch and stay alive (laughs) yeah Um, because the fastest way to make them stop hitting you is to kill them (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i i I know you had a note here uh, that i want to make sure we hit is that um we talked about torrent before but combat is also something that's extended to the horse this game has horseback combat this, I think, is my favorite horseback, com- horseback combat in any game. Really? Tell me more. Why do, you, why, do you, why do you think this works so much better than other horseback combat? It's because they pay so much attention to the weapon hitboxes, where the direction of where things are going from. The horse controls feel good. You always have the double jump move to get you out of sticky situations, um, but... It felt like it was very tactical, but at a different level than the uh, on-foot combat was. I totally agree with you. I think this is the most satisfying horseback combat I have ever played. I still don't think it's more fun than just normal combat. <laughs> but I, I don't think it's... Uh, it I think can it, be it more has fun. It, it has its place, for sure. Um, I do think that Torrent sort of controls in combat like... Um, a Dreamcast race car with all of the turning stats turned all the way up because you can turn like 180 <laughs> degrees on a dime and I'm pretty sure any horse in existence's ankles would just break. Um, I'm pretty tr- <laughs> sure any horse could not double jump. You're right. You're right. I mean, we're we're in the realm of fantasy here. So why not let Torrent I think this be... is a demigod horse. I, I agree. I mean, Torrent is definitely something special. I think, by the way, just a, a complete aside here, I have to believe that Torrent has its name so that if you googled elden ring torrent there is no way you're getting piracy results <laughs> oh that's, that's genius <laughs> it really is every every game from now on is going to have a character named torrent um but <laughs> <laughs> won't be as lovable as this horse indeed um you know i think as you, as you, from my perspective horseback combat is not perfect in this game but it is fun and it is head and shoulders above most games horseback combat i think it's great for dragons and big enemies um, like really makes those palatable in a way that the series never quite got right before. And strangely though, if an enemy is on a horse, I want to be on the ground. You know, I want them to make a run at me and I can anticipate and just react to it rather than huh. um, being, you know, horse for horse. I've always done horseback duels when you fight like the Knight Calvary or anyone else. I love those things. Love those. Uh, love those battles. I think the reason that the horseback combat feels so good is you know this is a game with difficult combat a lot of timing based sort of things but when you're on the horse you control that timing your maneuverability is so much greater that you can decide when to engage when to back off you know as long as the um it's not those damn beast man arrows coming at you (laughs) um you're able to really set the conditions on which the engagement happens which really in this game is everything you need to do to win you're absolutely right and and i think one of the more satisfying things i ever found out about you know how to do and just have always done constantly is to drag your sword along the ground until you get close to an enemy and you whip it <laughs> and hit him. it's just it's the funnest thing you can do in the game I oh, think. so satisfying <laughs> if you hit um, him with some of the bigger ones to go flying back a little bit 
yeah, it's feels it's good. great. And th there's nothing in this game that feels more epic than like riding into a dragon battle on horseback. Um, it is, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know why this like. I'm sure you know they had literally a decade to learn from Skyrim, but Skyrim never quite got there with like making the dragon battles feel suitably epic in a way that like there's just such a greater range of expression in in Elden Ring that makes it feel so much better. And I love Skyrim. Absolutely. But you know, Skyrim's great. But the first dragon battle was a set piece, and after that, they were just kind of like, eh, eh, eh. It's <laughs> agreed. A, here's a health bar to drain. Yeah, and, and in Elden Ring, like, they consistently delivered in turn. And, you know, not just dragons, other big enemies, too, that you could use Torrent for. And when you finally do meet the big enemies that you can't use Torrent for, you always feel a little bit like, you know, you're missing a key tool. <laughs> it, feels, it feels lacking, yeah. <laughs> Again, we were talking about how just the dudes, the army guys, were, you know, they were an engaging enemy throughout the game. And one of the things I noticed was, like, they'll introduce some of these knights when you are able to be on your horse and, like I said, control the terms of the engagement. Uh, then when you're in uh, the capital and you're fighting these knights, you can't use your horse in there. Yep. And there's an added difficulty there because now you have to engage them on foot. And the way that I'd been taking them out the whole game was all of a sudden not available to me, but at the right time. Totally agree. And I think, you know, we ran into this when we tried to play together multiplayer, uh, more on that later, um, is when you're in multiplayer, you cannot summon your horse. And some battles are made easier by the presence of Torrent, and other battles are made easier by the presence of a friend. And, you know, <laughs> there are um, there are definite, there's definitely a give and take with regards to like, what do I want to bring from my arsenal? Do I want to bring a summon? Do I want to bring the horse? Do I want to bring um, my buddy who knows this fight in and out? Um, do I want to, you know, there's a lot of a lot of ways to tackle a given problem in Elden Ring. And I think, you know, among other things, that's one of the things that makes it special. And there's a lot of problems in this, if you're defining problems as bosses. <laughs> Very true. There's so many bosses. Um you know, and so many different types of bosses, you know, you, everything from uh, some bosses, you know, can be repeated, right? Like there are, there are definitely bosses that you will see multiple times, like the guardians in the crypt, the uh, Erdtree sentinels, I think, or Erdtree, um, trying to remember the name of the, basically the totem guys, they're big stone yeah. guys that hop around, I don't remember, guard dogs, Erdtree guard. like tree sentinel is right, maybe, Yeah, Close, Erdtree, at least. It, or there's definitely dog or hound in the name, guard dog, something like that. At any rate, you can, you know the guys I'm talking about if you played Elder Ring. It was probably the first boss you fought. Um, it's, uh, um, you know, there's lots of repeating bosses, but there's also so, so many completely unique bosses that are just fascinating. Um, the most fascinating of which, to my mind, are all of the, the shard bearers, just some of the most fantastic bosses in, in really all of this, the FromSoft series history. Um, you know, I, I definitely have my favorites of the, the mainline bosses for sure. Um, how about your yourself, Josh? Oh, yeah, there's definitely memorable bosses in here. Um, although I'm not as big on, on the mainline ones as you. I thought Godric was a great boss. Uh, the Magic Academy 
queen. I, you know, it was interesting, but not, not like a top ten boss in this game. I agree. Too long, um, in terms of like you had to do the first phase, and it was just boring every time you had to redo the fight. <laughs> oh um, yeah, that first phase. I didn't know you. I didn't get the memo. You were supposed to kill specific grunts, so oh. I spent thirty <laughs> minutes around just hack and slashing. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what the game wants me to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, once you figure out that one, like it's trivial, but at the same time, it's just a time tax. Like, I would frequently get to the second stage of the Renala boss fight, full health, full everything, just five minutes poorer for my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's never fun. Like, I don't like a time tax, no matter what form it takes, no matter how like visually striking and interesting the the fight itself is. But um. Yeah, I I think there's something to be said for like the multi-phase boss fights in this game. I think they're used sparingly enough that it's never like egregious, but that is one that I wish they would have sort of short-circuited in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after Renala, go up to the capital, you fight Morgat. Uh, I, that one was a pretty easy boss fight for me. Like I don't even remember how the fight went. Uh, and that was the last, I think huge story boss that i did uh two did you never do radon he was my absolute favorite boss here same here Um, one of the the fun things about radon is you're fighting him during this festival of champions and instead of having like one ally you get a dozen and you are all going after this gigantic centaur guy or i think he's actually just a giant riding on a tiny horse that is correct (laughs) Radon is (laughs) by far my favorite boss in in Elden Ring and um, such an interesting backstory he literally you know we mentioned earlier Radon mastered gravity magic and could control the stars but the reason he did that was so that he could continue to ride his tiny horse as he grew to ginormous proportions as he lost his mind (laughs) and devoured everyone he fought against Um, but he got to stay with the horse that's right he got to stay with his horse and that's all that matters at the end of the day Um, and I, another thing I loved, as you mentioned, you're basically able to summon like an army of all of your your friends and allies you've seen throughout the game, and some of you haven't. And one of the people you can summon is Patches, who has made appearances in all of the FromSoft games, starting back in Dark Souls or maybe even Demon Souls. I can't remember. But um, the great thing about him is he's a deceiver, he's a coward, he's a thief. And as soon as you summon him in for the Radon boss fight, he'll immediately say. Uh, nope and you will get a message that says Patches has left your world and he will just retreat <laughs> immediately because he's a coward right I mean I when I first saw that like I just cracked up um, because you know it's just this brave Sir Robin character bravely running away um, uh, it's it's a it, it's such an interesting and atypical boss fight for a Souls-like game and it was it could only have been done in Elden Ring and I really enjoyed that Oh, for sure. That was a standout boss fight. A very interesting kind of like idea to just be like, hey, one summons is great. How about 10 of them? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I I, I don't know if we're going to see, like, I don't think there's another boss fight that reaches that level of um, just pure novelness. I mean, I think the um, Rikard fight, the giant snake god, in the volcano is pretty good but that that trope where you get the, the snake slaying sword and you or spear and, and use that um 
it has been seen before in the series, but it, it was very well executed in this in Elden Ring. I also want to call out to uh, Margit, the oh, first yeah. story boss. Um, man, oh man. And this is kind of like the first like real test you got to pass in the game. Um, but I think they did a very good job with it. Like, It's really teaching you a lot of the things you got to know. I think um, if anybody's having trouble with any FromSoft games... I was too until somebody gave me the advice to not attack the bosses at first. Like, Mm -hmm. don't focus on attacking them. Focus on learning their moves and their timing. And once you know what's coming at you, then you come in. That's just like, um, it's a piece of from software literacy that I did not have until I got into this game. And after I learned that and started applying that, a lot of the bosses made more sense i think margaret and i I totally agree with you josh and i think margaret is interesting in that like i agree with you it's a great boss but i think it's a great boss for experienced players you know you as you said you've played a few games of this type before you kind of know the the way that it should work and i think making this the first real boss you found was a bit of a double-edged sword for the game because I know I know out there there are people who fought that boss and got real salty and you know maybe put the game down maybe decided uh, I'm going to take a break on this maybe this game's not for me or there are others for whom you know my reaction was oh I'm clearly not ready for this uh, it was a choke point for me that said all right I'm gonna I'm gonna go back I'm gonna do some optional content to power up and when I'm back here next time Margaret. I'm not going to beat you. I'm going to humiliate you. <laughs> <laughs> and that is such a huge advantage of this game's open world design, um, where I feel like the earlier, like the Dark Souls game, you can't, if you're stuck at a boss, you're stuck. Uh, where so this game's like, oh, just go take a stroll in this beautiful park we have designed for you off to the right, and then come back when you've enjoyed that. And hey, this is easier now. You know, one thing I really loved about this game, which I was questioning at first, but really come to appreciate, is that every level up you get, your damage resistance increases by one across all categories. So every time you level up, it doesn't matter if you make the worst build decisions ever, you are slightly better at withstanding damage and you'll last slightly longer against these bosses. Yeah, you're less fragile. And yeah, I think this is absolutely what the game is trying to get you to do. It's trying to say, all right, well, I've run into the brick wall that is Margit, and now I'm going to go, well, there was that whole continent down south, Weeping Peninsula. Maybe I should check that out for a while. And on my first playthrough, that's exactly what I did. I basically cleared the entire Weeping Peninsula, came back 20 levels higher with a bunch of upgraded weapons, and had a much easier time with Margit. Um, who, ironically, I think is actually much easier than the shard bearer, uh, Godfrey or Godric in um, in the Stormvale Castle that is directly behind Margit. Um, you said easier. Do you mean harder? Yeah, yeah. Or no? I think I think uh, Margit is much harder. Yeah, I think so. Um, I feel like Margit maybe had some more maneuverability. Not only maneuverability, but also like strange combo timing. Like, there's lots of like weird delays and weird extensions to Margaret's combos that will definitely trip up a new player. 
And they're definitely designed so that like if you roll backwards or try and retreat or block, you will get owned. They are trying to get you to roll into the attacks, which is weird but and, and unintuitive. But I think for like... Oh, definitely. I think a person like you or I who has played a bunch of these games could clock that and like probably have a much easier time with it. Um, and now, especially after playing a couple hundred hours of the game, <laughs> you know, mm. we both we both restarted this game like in the last 48 hours. And I think we cleared through Margit in, you know, a little over an hour each. And, you know, that contrast that with the 10 plus hours I probably spent getting through there on the first time. And you get an idea for what we're talking about, you know, in these in these Souls-like games, especially when it comes to combat and progression, experience shrinks the, the play space just so much. Um, and I think Margot is, it, it's no better seen than in the little run up from your starting point in Limgrave to the gates of Stormvale and Margot. think that's one of the design philosophies of the game perhaps is to reward that replay that you got going for a different build like um let's say you clear this game out you 100% this game you clear out every boss you know all 20,000 of them um when you go through and you're playing it with a different build a different play style uh, and, and you know the different playstyle is different enough that it's like a whole learning thing you can choose to skip pretty much everything and you do the dungeons to get the equipment you know you want you skip the bosses you're like ah, eh, that guy wasn't fun last time pass um you can sneak around stormvale castle and just not do that yeah, it, you're absolutely right. I, I think this game, especially even more so than the other ones in the um, the FromSoft catalog, like really rewards a, another playthrough just because there's so many different things you could do. And the main reason for that is I think this game has a, a build variety that is unparalleled in in the series, right? Like if Sekiro is all the way on one end where they're saying, we are making this super fine-tuned, um, perfect prism of what we expect the the player to come out the other end being able to do. Elden Ring is saying, you can do pretty much whatever you want and beat this game one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. Like, um, just every... There's so many weapons in this game, and every weapon has a its own hitbox. It has its own animation, timing things to get down you can add the uh ashes of war on top of the weapons to get different skills coming out of them uh you know you feel the difference in the range between a spear and a dagger and you better take advantage of that you know you got to roll into some enemies which is the unintuitive thing you got to learn for it but uh if you got the dagger you got to get in close and you you know that Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the first thing that I noticed about Elden Ring when I started to see how much variety they were throwing at you in terms of the way you can even use just one 
any given weapon is that builds are back. You know, builds were, were back, and I was a little salty at the end of Sekiro for how little build variety I was getting out of out of the game because that's what I, I kind of liked about Dark Souls was like, hey, I could do a whole other playthrough as a uh, magic user, and it'll be completely different. And this game just has that in, in spades. Um, I think the best thing I can say about the build variety in this game is that on your first playthrough, it can be completely serendipitous. Like you can just find one thing that all of a sudden makes you say, oh, now this is what my character is all about. Like I found one great <laughs> great sword early on. It was just like, oh, okay, well, this is clearly the thing I'm going to be using for the rest of the game. And you just, you know, uh, continue to use that uh, one spell or Ash of War or um, Katana or whatever it is you find. Uh, to the hilt and because it continues to work and the game allows you to uh you know continue to upgrade and basically make anything you find in the entire game viable you can serendipitously find your way into your build almost any way any time yeah i think that's a good point like with a game with as much variety as this like um Besides the weapons in the Ashes of War we talked about, you have your different summons you have to choose from. You have your different talismans. Uh, like The summons are used in boss fights and difficult enemy areas in the open world as well. Um, but each of them has their own kind of rules they play by. Actually, I think most of the enemies you fight in the game, most of the grunts and elites at least, can be summoned later mm-hmm. on. Yeah, a lot of them can. Um, and I think, you know, there, there's a lot of folks, uh, this is one of the key additions to Elden Ring, actually, is, as you mentioned, Josh, the spirit ashes, the summons, the ability to, um, you know, use this little bell that um, a demigod gives you very early on in the game, and for any given boss fight, and or anywhere there's a summoning pole, which it took me a long time to realize that, but every t- everywhere you can summon, there's a little pole called a summoning pole. That's why you're allowed to summon there. And, um, there are just a huge variety of those. And the most popular and powerful one uh, is ironically the one that's just you. It's just a direct copy of your character, the mimic tier. <laughs> um, oh, uh, I've never used that one before. Oh my God. Are you serious? Wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Let me tell you about the mimic tier. So, um, oh man, this is great. Um, so the mimic tier has a reputation for being the game's most popular summon. And that is because that uh, summon just summons a replica of you into the fight. Um, so any equipment you're wearing, um, skills you have equipped, spells you have equipped, it, it can also use. Um, and it has a healthy health bar to go along with it. So this is can be like the ultimate tank, really. If you're a beefy character, it can provide just an enormous amount of damage. You know, a, a mage summoning another mage, basically. For me, this was just bouncing bosses back and forth between a barrage of glintstone. Um, <laughs> it's... Um, it is. It, it it has been considered to be like basically uh, a way to really alleviate some of the difficulty of the game because most bosses will be, um, you know, having their attention split between two of you is uh, pretty devastating. Um, and, and like I said, there's a lot of. Let me just preface this by saying I don't agree with the viewpoints of a lot of the Souls community. I think there's a lot of gatekeeping that is, you know, by and large toxic. And we'll talk about sort of the difficulty discourse around this. I'm sure at some point, but. Um, folks didn't like the fact that you could all of a sudden summon anywhere, but I got to tell you, I think this is a great choice 
one, if you don't want to summon, you're free not to. But two, it really just adds one, a, a really fun additional mechanic to the game, and two, makes it a lot easier to get through a lot of content. And the content that is truly meant to be the end game challenging content, your summon's not going to save you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. And all the Dark Souls games have had a very vibrant multiplayer component to them, both in terms of community, scrawling graffiti on the wall, and, you know, like convincing, convincing you to jump off a cliff because there might be treasure at the bottom of it. Um, but also, <laughs> when you go in to fight a boss, there's always the ability ability to summon in other people to help you out with that boss. And I saw these summon ashes or the spirit ashes as a way to balance out the um, introvert or the per person who's playing this at the wrong time and there isn't an available buddy to co-op a boss with. Um, because if you are doing a multiplayer like when me and Brian played together, you could not bring your summons in as well. You could summon a friend or you could summon, you know, a floating jellyfish. Um, <laughs> Love that jellyfish. But not both of them. Jellyfish is great. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, the jellyfish actually is the summon I'm using on my current poisoning playthrough. Um, ironically, I started that as a bleed build. But as I mentioned about the serendipity earlier, I immediately uh, I, I found an unexpected a poison armament spell that honestly I don't think I'd ever found with any of my other characters to date and said, mm -hmm. oh, it's only going to take me one more point into faith to be able to use this. And then I have a poisoning build. So I guess this is where my character is going now. <laughs> <laughs> now that's fun. That's fun. Now you talk about changing builds a little bit. Um, you asked earlier why I made the decision to kind of like mid game after I got two runes already change my character around. I think there were a couple of things. I felt hampered by my character's lack of ranged skill. I had a bow, but I'm not very good at using the bow in this game. Yeah, me neither. Um, it's hard and skill. He, he was a quality build, so strength and dex were what I was pumping points into. But I think um, this game, more so than the earlier games, wants you to you know, have a little bit of magic on the side, either in intelligence or faith, depending on what you're going for. Like, um, I'm sure there's people who do do a quality build still are, but it was not my first w way to go through the game. So I started over with a magic character also because I wanted to experience going through the game again, having gone through it. I think that's an important part of the Dark Souls Elden Ring FromSoft experience is how your experience with the game, your knowledge of the game, like you said before, compresses time and space, and you're able to go further faster, much faster sometimes, when you know the systems and know what's expected of you. No, I, th I think that's extremely well put, and there are mechanical reasons you could have chosen for just plain restarting as well. Like I think for as much flexibility as this game offers you with being able to completely respec your stats and then all of a sudden use a bunch of equipment and spells and such that you didn't have before, you can't refund upgrade materials. So if you poured a bunch of upgrade materials into a sword that you no longer want to use in a run, you have the choice between doing a lot of really boring farming of um, uh, stones, uh, uh, upgrade stones, regular uh, shards or somber 
shards to upgrade your weapons. Or, as you did, Josh, you could just start over and learn it from scratch and have a really fun time sort of owning the first part of the game because you know it really well. And of those two choices, I think I now understand why you chose the latter. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's like um, after I did the Rhea Academy, I could have respect to the magic build I was thinking of, but then I would have been playing mid-game difficulty enemies and levels, and sure, I could have learned, but I think I wanted to go experience those earlier learning areas again knowing what i did now but also kind of learn how to deal with enemies from the magic rather than the the melee perspective yeah you know i think to say that like oh it would have been easy just to respec midstream like that i think that is true in like a minor respec but to your point like if you're playing through this game the first time and you want to fully respec into an entirely different class You'd be discounting the on-ramping that this game does, the slow but steady onboarding to learning your character and how to you know, deal with a variety of situations to just say that, oh, I could just do this you know, seamlessly and all of a sudden head up to the Altus Plateau instead of starting from Lindgrave, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I, I totally, I get that aspect entirely because a lot of teaching does happen in this game. Even, you know, me as... Uh, both of us, I'd imagine, having started new characters, are learning new things about a build type we both never played before. You know, ironically, um, we were talking on Discord right before this. We both chose to start new characters and both chose to do like stealthy, thiefy bleed builds because <laughs> <laughs> neither of us have done that before. Well, we both did might and magic, and then there's a stealth left. That's right. Yes. Time to be a stealth archer. Um. <laughs> no, but you mentioned like here's another point in favor of starting over and doing Limgrave again is that Limgrave is awesome and big. Um yeah, I wondered about that. What what is your favorite area of the game? Is is it Limgrave, or do you have another that you're you're fond of? I like the art style in the Atlas Plateau, but easily easily Limgrave. Limgrave is going to be like one of those video game areas I remember. Just due to the all of the like interesting like first time experiences that happen there, or you know, how it does a great job of teaching or how it has so many surprising and delighting things that happen in it. Um, no, I think, I think you're right. I think it's slim guy for me too. <laughs> like there's, I, I kept wanting to say like, oh no, it's, it's Caleb because it's like, there's so much interesting going on there from a lore perspective or no, it's, it's Landall the capital because it's such an intricately designed dungeon. But no, all, all of my fondest memories are like the delight that I felt at Limgrave, and I think like even its final send-off as you cross the threshold out of the Stormvale Keep and look over the lakes of Laernia and see this gigantic vista of the entire next 20 hours of your life flashing before you, like, <laughs> and it was the sweetest farewell that Limgrave could possibly give me. A beautiful view. At the end of all of it, a beautiful view. Indeed.
No, I mean, like, it's such a great opening area that really sets the tone for the whole game and how it's going to work. Like, having just uh, gone through the opening areas again, what happens when you start up the game? You go through the tarnished thing, you get ganked by the grafted scion, unless you're one of these speedrunner people who, you know... (laughs) I've played one- 250 hours uh, approximately of this game, and I got destroyed immediately by that thing again. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you get destroyed by an enemy, and then you come out of this church. There's a, there's a nice tutorial section you can do, but you walk out of that, and you're like, I'm in the real game. Here's the Erd tree off in the distance, and oh, look, here's a guy on a horse off in the <laughs> distance. I'm going to try to fight him, because... This is what the game is clearly directing to me, me to do. You get close to the guy, and you find out that this guy on a horse is 30 feet tall, and his horse is about four times the size of a normal one, and you get stomped. <laughs> and you're like, well, this game is going to stomp me over and over again. Yeah, that's not a guy on a horse. That's a giant riding a rhinoceros. Um. <laughs> and the the great thing is is even if you think oh i got this i'm a magic user i can stay at range no no he has a magic deflecting shield the utter bastard <laughs> <laughs> the game lets you know early where you stand and that is that you will be punished for fighting people you aren't ready for yeah, there, there's a lot of memorable spots in that first opening, like the first church you arrive at with the merchant who is mysteriously dressed like Santa Claus. Um, the first uh, gate that starts to head up into Stormvale where you meet your maiden, Melina, and get your whistle that lets you summon Torrent. Um, it's also the part, the place where, as a mage, magic user, I found my first spell merchant uh, over, you know, Sela, Sorceress Sela, which weirdly sounds like Sorcery Seller. Um, <laughs> um, you know, there's just a lot to like about Limgrave, and it's as you said, like there's a lot of story there. There's a lot of really great content, and it ramps you up to take on uh, Margit, as we already talked about, in such an elegant way. Uh, while oh, you know, hang on, before Look, before before dear. the yeah before the elegance, there there may be a bit of. Uh, stomping but yeah please go ahead (laughs) so i never went to that first church with my first playthrough not not at first at least because i saw the tree knight i tried to fight the tree knight he killed me and i thought he was guarding the church so i never tried to go around the flank so okay i i did not get the spirit ashes summon and mm. I remember trying to take Margaret on without that, oh, wow. um, which was much more difficult. I think I probably spent two to three hours just fighting him over and over again, different strategies, switching equipment, trying different things out, um, and was not was not getting it, uh, was not making progress. So when Margaret said... Let us put these foolish ambitions to rest. You seriously considered it. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I was having enough fun with the game that, like, I didn't want to go look up things right away. Um, But I did use my podcast buddies who told me about these spirit ashes. Uh, (laughs) So went away, did some side questing elsewhere, came back with 
a better understanding of how the game works and was able to beat Margaret pretty handily. Yeah, and I think, like, honestly, I think that's what the game is trying to get you to do, is get you to run into that brick wall and then propel you back into, you know, all of the other parts of Limgrave and the Weeping Peninsula, which is, I guess, the route I took. Um, like I said, it's it's not pretty the first time you do it. Um, I would say the way I did it in the last two days was pretty pretty, you know? I, I Like, I would have been proud to have streamed that content for people, like, just to see how this works. <laughs> the first time, not so much. <laughs> Oh, that's fair enough. Now, I suppose this game and the FromSoft games before it have a reputation for being difficult things. Uh, they certainly do. Yeah. And and as I mentioned earlier, like they have a lot of a vocal minority of assets who popularize a mentality that can be summarized as get good. Um, I don't <laughs> think that's very helpful, <laughs> to be frank. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let let's back off of that mindset entirely, you know, grow up, please. Um, let people love the thing you love is, is probably a better way to approach this. And and if people are legitimately asking for help, maybe give them a sincere answer and not some quip. Um, that's at least my viewpoint on it. It's an interesting thing when you're thinking like the idea of climbing the mountain versus the idea of, Hey, you and me are parents with limited time to climb mountains these days. (laughs) Fair. So it's like, this game does a great job at letting you experience the game, even if there are a dungeon or a boss somewhere that you can't get through right now. It does. Um, You know, I think this game, as I said earlier, it's absolutely as hard as any of the other FromSoft games that I see or have played. But at the same time, um, it does a much better job of accommodating the fact that we know that you're not going to come into a situation fully formed at any given point. And so we're giving you lots of lots of options to get to a point where you are, you know, Um, I think there are so many ways to get to a point where you've outpaced the difficulty of the main story in this game. And then it can be a lot less demanding than the initial uh, sort of headline difficulty um, of the game can be, but it is a time investment too. So, you know, if that's something you're not willing to, or, you know, what not wanting or willing to, to surmount, then yeah, it's still a fairly like tall ask for most people. Like, I don't think I could in good faith recommend this game to peers of mine who don't have a ton of experience with video games and also have limited time like myself, you know? I think the FromSoft games have their own conventions and literacy to them that you kind of got to learn. Like, um, I I wonder how it would be going back to Dark Souls after playing this game and kind of learning more of the conventions. Like, um, these are the only two FromSoft games I've played. So it's like the beginning and the end, or at least the latest end right now. Um, but I feel like after playing this game, there is... Like, I I understand what they're going for right there. And I think difficulty a lot of times can be summed up in, like, a mismatch of expectations or of literacy right here. Like, I've played a bunch of hack-and-slash action games before, and a lot of the things I knew from those games was outright damaging to me in this game. Yep. Yeah. 
but you have to learn that you have to get through the like why didn't x work when x worked in another game that is interesting in two ways one is that um you know i completely agree with you that like video game literacy is a huge aspect of like being able to enjoy a game like elden ring and i think for elden ring specifically FromSoft literacy is a huge part of being able to enjoy this game. You know, it draws so much on its predecessors. And we've talked about this with regards to like even Halo, which is supposed to, you know, one of the most broad, broadly appealing games ever. But I can't help but think that for people our age, we're starting to see a drawbridge like sort of being pulled up behind us. And, you know, the fact that like we're aware of all of these conventions and that plays into how we experience the difficulty of a given game um, is going to continue to more and more affect how they're designed, right? Like we're the core audience for these, so they're being designed for us. And that's sort of like this vicious cycle where we're the most experienced. We They know we are going to be the people that buy them. And yet we have these very different expectations about what a game of this type and style should be from a difficulty perspective. And that's not to say that, you know, older folks, and I say that about us, like literally people in our thirties, older folks in the video game community, (laughs) um, um, can't learn or like adapt or pick this up. But I would have a hard time saying like, yeah, this is going to be an easy lift for you person who hasn't played a video game since the N64 era. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite, not quite. I was uh, hearing a talk about Angband, one of the original kind of like big four roguelikes back in the late 80s, early 90s. This person felt that the community of Angband was a very hardcore kind of audience. So the developers pivoted more to the hardcore audience because the hardcore was the vocal audience too. Um, And not even in a a negative way, but they were the ones making suggestions, looking for like gameplay modifications, being engaged, which is great to have that as a community. But that this roguelike listened to them too much at the expense of getting in new players and the game kind of died on the vine and its successor took it up eventually but it died because it listened too much to it became too insular yeah no i I think that's a great point and i think it, it kind of serves to highlight what i think we're talking about here which that like there's so much that people that are immersed in a community take for granted about the way an experience is supposed to be and we see this play out in a broader way in the industry, you know, every decade or so, right? There's this pendulum that swings back and forth between games over-explaining themselves at the start and then swinging back to basically not hand-holding as much. And I think basically from 2010 till now, we've seen this gigantic shift back towards not hand-holding the player, right? And that serves people like you and me just fine. Like, I like that games are starting to trust me to figure it out. Um, but I also understand that there are drawbacks to that approach for folks that are new to the game, the genre, or even the medium. Oh, for sure. It's it's a hard game to pick up as your first video game in five years. 
<laughs> and you know, luckily neither of us are doing that. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think it's one of those things that can't be discounted. And there's the whole other like a side of this prism, which is accessibility. Which, by the way, I'm very proud of us for not immediately veering the difficulty discussion into accessibility because those are two separate and distinct topics that I think are important to tackle on their own. But um, accessibility in Elden Rings is an entire other thing, and maybe we can talk about that real quick right now because. Um, as we talked about, I think this game is as hard as anything, and I think it's perfectly fine for it to be as hard as the developers want it to be. At the same time, I think in the service of maximizing the amount of people that can experience your game, you should probably think about making uh, adjustments to the way your game is designed in order to allow that to happen. And, you know, while Elden Ring, I think, makes a lot of good adjustments in terms of allowing people of varying skill levels to experience the entirety of Elden Ring, I still think there's a lot that, I'm not, and I don't mean to pick on Elden Ring in this regard, but the industry in general can do in terms of making things more accessible for differently abled players. So I don't know if this has a place in this discussion of Elden Ring, but it's just something that's been on my mind. It gets into a discussion of difficulty. There's, um, I think, a contingent of people out there that say, like, if being difficult isn't the default, then I'm not going to choose to do that but also i value being forced into doing that and getting through this game at a certain difficulty setting like i'm thinking of hades here which had a great system after you beat the game the first time um of adding on optional kind of like difficulty difficulty modifiers of different types and it's an optional system and that you don't have to do anything with it in order to progress the narrative. Um, But it's also not like forced upon you too. Yeah. I I think we're kind of talking past each other right now, right? Or in in this regard though, because I'm not even talking about that. Like I think there is a difference between difficulty and accessibility (laughs) that needs to be addressed, right? Like there's a difference Mm. between saying how hard you want to make a game and how um, mechanically accommodating your game can be to people with different, you know, physical abilities in general, like the ability to play a game with one hand, for instance, um, you know, that's not accommodated by many games. And it's beyond the difficulty discussion to say that um, Elden Ring should accommodate something like that. It is an accessibility discussion, right? It's not talking about like calling for an easy mode for people who think the game's too hard. It's calling for an accessibility feature for people that literally can't play the game otherwise. (laughs) So, you know, I fully agree with you that like the developers are within their, their rights to make a game as difficult as they want. But I think accommodating those that aren't able to play the game otherwise is is something that needs to be thought of as well right you know we make these games for as ideally as many people as possible to experience well as a sort of um game dev perspective on this um is that in general uh game developers are trying to engage everyone they can um of Everyone who wants to play the game should be able to play the game at some way or another. Um, and one, I think sometimes the efforts that are put into that can be less noticeable or less uh, obvious. Um, but I will say that one major way that that can be accommodated 
is by having remappable input bindings or um, remappable controls. Totally. So, like, um, if you are a gamer who has good use of one hand and not the other, but maybe, you know, both of your feet work, maybe there's some pedal controllers out there that you can use. And if you're able to remap those from whatever configuration you have to work with a game, then you're able to play the game as intended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I haven't that... checked out what their rebindable control scheme is like, but I have a feeling that FromSoft did a good job with it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not saying they didn't. And I think what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is like when when there are people calling for accommodations to a game's difficulty, it's very easy for questions of accessibility to be lost in the shuffle. There is definitely a community around this game like there is around a lot of FromSoft games and I feel like the, that community can be very interesting sometimes both I don't know um it can be enthusiastic I feel like it can be wrong enthusiastic yes it, but it could also be toxic <laughs> <laughs> Yeah I mean uh toxic gamers is not not exclusive to Elden Ring <laughs> n- not a news item in general um but you know this game does have a community built into it in a very mechanical sense. Like, this isn't a game where you just go online to a wiki and that wiki is kind of like the metagame presence. This game has multiplayer woven into it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, for as much as I do feel like the the wiki is sometimes the um, external element of the game that I interact most with, uh, I also do... Uh, enjoy myself some jolly cooperation with regards to, uh, you know, teaming up for a boss with uh, a friend. Uh, although I, I don't think we've had much success teaming up against bosses, Josh. But <laughs> we got the it's... dragon, didn't we? Yeah, we did. That's right. I forgot about that. Um, but yeah, there's there's all kinds of co-op in this game. There's, um, you know, the ability to summon a friend in for an area, a boss. I had a really great experience playing with my buddy Joe through Stormvale Castle the first time he was making his way through there. That was really fun. Um, I was just like a day of playtime ahead of him. So I was like just starting to explore Lyurnia and we both sort of went through Stormvale and that was a blast. Um, there's also the more antagonistic aspect, which has been around as long as the Souls-like games have been around of invasions. Um, you can be a character that uh, chooses to invade other uh, players who are engaging in multiplayer too. In this game, you will generally speaking only be invaded if you are also, you know, with someone else. Um, so the invader is inherently at a disadvantage, which I think is a nice touch. <laughs> I was never invaded except the few times we were playing together. Yeah, I think that's by design. I think it, it's either, I can't remember if it's only you will be invaded if you are um, doing co-op or if it's just very rare that you would be invaded otherwise. Um you can always summon someone who drops a dueling summon sign down. Uh, there's a red summon sign you can drop that basically says, hey, I want to duel. And if you see one of those, you can call them into your world. And that is basically understood as, all right, let's fight. Um, and that's interesting that they make a distinction between PvP and I'm going to call it gentleman's terms. Right. And PvP, <laughs> yo, I'm coming to your house to fuck shit up. Yes. And I think it's fitting that the I'm coming to fuck your day up pvp happens for the player um the invader being at a disadvantage right like there's already a person you're already playing co-op so it's two on one uh in favor of the defenders versus the invader 
Um, and then on top of that, there is a thing called the blue cipher ring, which I always keep on, um, which basically says if another player is invaded, you can be summoned in to assist the party being invaded and fend off the the invader. So that's a blast because you can um, all of a sudden be, you know, murking your way through the overworld and then see you're being summoned to another player's world. And I'm like, all right, it's go time. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's, that's great. Like it, it puts you in like, you know, you could be teleported across the map. Like I've been exploring Liurnia and suddenly being teleported into like Mount Gelmir to uh, find a, a guy to, to kill a bloody finger who's invaded another hmm. player. And it's a blast. Um, and you get some, you know, some rewards for doing that. You get like a rune arc or something like that. And um, I, I don't know. I like I like this game's multiplayer options, but I do wish sometimes that they made co-op just a little more friendly. Like we played an, an indie game recently the other day for the cast where you and I could quickly coordinate a steam party literally with like two clicks. And this was just a dude who coded this. And this is from uh, soft we're talking about here, you know, top of their field in, in designing video games. And it's still really cumbersome to get me and you to go together to fight a boss at times you know like i think there's pros and cons to this approach me or you would have to lay out the summon sigil and then anybody could call us but it's like we don't want to play with anybody we want to play with each other which why there isn't an option to just do that i don't know there is but it's still cumbersome right that that option is the multiplayer password which you and i put on whenever we played right we used pixel um mm -hmm. and that basically means we're only going to see each other's summon signs if we both enter that multiplayer password but in even with that it's still like okay well all right i dropped it to the left of the brazier next to the doorway make sure you <laughs> you know it's just um it's not as streamlined as it could be and i get like adding that friction like is part of the experience in itself but you know Oh, no. It's not ideal. No, there should be <laughs> a Steam invite like you can send with every other game I that agree. says, hey, I want to play with this person. Make it happen. Yeah, totally agree with that. And then things like um, the difference between the overworld and the dungeon, legacy dungeon or otherwise, where you can't take your summon with you across certain points. Like, why? We'd have to do things like... Uh, Okay, we disconnect and then we I cross the barrier and then summon you again, which was not worthwhile. I agree. I mean, I think this this system needs work. <laughs> like if there's if there's one thing like I think this game is still stuck in the 2000s with, it's it's definitely the multiplayer aspect. Um it's so funny because they're so miles ahead of everyone else in in so many aspects of like game design, level design, um world design and then like we get to this netcode thing and it's just like crank halt smash into a wall you know your pants fall down around your ankles and all of a sudden you're like oh my goodness what the hell happened <laughs> <laughs> it's just you know this developer can't get out of its own way with the way it handles multiplayer sometimes and you know i feel like they i'm, tr I'm trying to be nice about it but i feel like they think it's in service of a particular feel and um, i'm not getting much from it anymore <laughs> well speaking of what do you think about the message system 
Okay, so... Was that a plus or minus for you? Generally speaking, it's positive. Like, um, especially if you turn on, like, certain... If you put on multiplayer codes that only let you see messages from communities that you know and engage with and trust, like, they're pretty good. But if you get, like, the full, like, hose, uh, you know, the full fire hose of all of the messages in the overworld, you're going to see a lot of... You say you can just, like, filter this by certain communities? You can. You can, in fact. Um, so, so I got the fire hose the whole time. Okay. All right. So, yeah, I think if you're looking at the fire hose, um, it's going to range from funny to annoying. Um, <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> So I'm sure sometime, you know, this has been around since Dark Souls, and I'm sure the first time someone put amazing chest ahead in front of Guinevere in Anne Orlando, that was very clever. But like the 17th time you see try finger butthole in front of the the two fingers, you're going to be like, okay, I'm 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 not getting too much out of this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the gamer community. Right. I mean, not to be like a, a stick in the mud or something like that, but like, come on, guys. It's it's been 10 years. We can we can think of something more clever than that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think Try fingers, butthole, but was the most common message I saw throughout the thing. Yeah, well, there are, in fact, useful things where, like, people will point you toward an illusory wall or uh, note a ledge you can drop down to find a treasure that you wouldn't have otherwise found. And, you know, or they can tell you that these things exist where they don't. They can, in fact, do that. They can say, hey, just jump off this ledge. Great treasure ahead. And you will do that and die. (laughs) Uh, Although I will say a nice thing was that they often showed bloodstains. True. Yes. That was uh, always a dead giveaway when a lot of people were dying next to a very highly rated jump off this ledge. (laughs) (laughs) Now, there were useful messages that I got throughout gameplay. Um, I remember like a whole bunch of like, ambush ahead on left or something like that which would give me a key to what was coming up which i feel was like what they intended the system to be used on at least you know like 20 years ago when they first made dark souls because dark souls had the same style of messages too um although it's become a sort of thing in an elden ring generally speaking the messages for me like for the communities that i followed there would be rings around the ones from the communities that you follow right so if you see a a blood stain with a ring it meant it was someone you you know were in a community with that had died if it was a message with a ring it was a message from someone in that community so um yeah if you were just getting like the straight fire hose of of information like you're going to get a lot of uh a lot of noise to the the signal. <laughs> Too many comedians. Indeed, indeed. So this game had a pretty great plot, but I think one of the most interesting things about it for the better and for the worse was how obscure it was and for both for the better and for the worse for the better 
I think this game had great environmental storytelling. Like, you piece together a good bit of the lore and the backstory by looking at descriptions of items. It tells you about, oh, this is how the Golden Order was decided to do X, Y, or Z or something like that. Just a little bit of... It's like a nugget of information that you build up into kind of like, hey, here's my head cannon mm-hmm. of what's going on. Um, but I read an interview with uh, Miyazaki mm-hmm. who was talking about when he was a child living in Japan. His father had a set of Britannica encyclopedias that he would read through. Uh, this was in the English language version which when he was a kid, he did not speak English well. Um, But he was very kind of affected by like, he could read an article and kind of get most of what the idea was. Not all of it, but he could get most of it there. And it would just be a short snippet over there. And he'd try to piece together this world based off of these partly translated encyclopedia articles. And that that's a flavor he was going for in all of the Souls-like, the, you know, the FromSoft games. Dark Souls, Sekiro, Elden Ring. And I think that's something that's apparent when you see this these bits of environmental storytelling. When you see an item that has a lore-rich description to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I totally see where that is coming through in the game and uh, another phrase that I saw was Miyazaki saying that the story is sort of like using a dungeon master's handbook in a tabletop RPG right um, when you're when you're looking at the definition of a um, an item like it will tell you a few interesting things about its mechanics and then some context for what it means to the world that you didn't ask the question about and it doesn't like it doesn't need to be there, but it is because it's you know it's the the dungeon master's handbook definition of the claymore or whatever. This was used by the X Y Z knights for this battle, and you know, or you know for more specific artifacts like this was used by um, the assassins that killed Godwin on the night of the long black knives or whatever. Um, and that uh, guy was a motherfucker. <laughs> that's right. And the black finger assassin. That's. That's one of my top ten bosses. Yeah, he's a good boss. Uh, he's really hard. Um, and to that end, like I think that's the same way that the game treats its NPCs and its quests, right? Like they aren't ever specifically put in, in a quest log. You know, there's no like list of things you need to do. And it's only a, a patch that they added after the launch of the game that even tells you where certain NPCs are at any given time. It's always exciting in this game to meet a new NPC, and I think like. The fact that the game just sort of lets you happen upon them by happenstance um, makes it more exciting when it happens. You're almost never told to do something. So when you stumble upon someone who has a goal and you can align your interests with theirs, it feels more meaningful. Oh, I feel like they could have done this better, though. Mm -hmm. Um, In this particular context, I took about a three-month break from Elden Ring. And I came back and I'm like, what's going on with my quests? (laughs) I'm not sure. Well, to the wiki and to the wiki should not be a battle cry for the game developer. They should tell you what's going on in your game. 
because they made it. So two things to that. One, I do agree with you that I like when a game will uh, remind me of the game state where I left it when I come back after a long um, absence. I think the game that did this best for me was Dragon Quest XI, um, where basically every time you load up your game while the screen is is loading, it will say, recently, uh, you did this, that, and the other thing. And here's the thing that you're trying to do now. Um, just so we, you know, you don't even have to go to your quest log when the game boots up. Here's all the things that are <laughs> relevant to you right now. On the other hand, the to the wiki as necessarily a bad thing is something that I think flies in the face of what the Souls series is trying to do with its community. I do think that to the wiki can be like a thing that this game one expects you to do and two kind of relies on you doing like at this point they know they have an engaged community and they know that there's going to be a wiki that tells you about like all of this stuff and there's going to be theory crafting and there's going to be lore masters and people trying to figure out what's going on in this world and that's like literally a whole cottage industry for these FromSoft games at this point so to discount that and just like put it all in the game um one like it's work they don't have to do <laughs> but um two it is kind of invigorating to like go to a community and find an answer for a very specific question that you have so you know i'm i'm of two minds of it and i think it could be handled better just from a, f- a pure like taking the game as like an experience in 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 no in with a lack of context perspective but there is a reason that they're doing it the way they are No, I will completely agree with you that this is what they are expecting the average engaged player to do is to (laughs) engage with the community through the wiki, through the forums, whatever else. Um, I think they're wrong about (laughs) it is the difference. Like they made the wrong decision about this. Like if you play this game 20 years, like when we played Dark Souls, it did not have the same number of people playing it as back when true so like the messages that were left were much more rare than they would have been like that's a kind of a variable sort of thing to it um and that variability goes with community engagement as well like people are going to be more engaged with elden ring in 2022 than they will be in 2032 no you're right i mean as um and you know video games have never been great about game preservation and you know making sure that an experience that exists today is going to be preserved for uh folks that are around you know in a decade or two um you know there's a lot of talk about the servers for dark souls one multiplayer having been shut down for several months during the year that elden ring came out uh that was an entirely unrelated news story but it just goes to underline what you're saying which is these games have aspects that rely on third-party resources that aren't always going to be there. <laughs> um, and from a preservation perspective, that's problematic, right? Like there is literally no way now to play like, um, say, uh, the World of Warcraft as it existed in 2013 or whatever. And there never will be, right? Like you're you're not going to have like a perfect model of that community and what was going on there at the time and the meta and et cetera. And I guess that's one of those things we just kind of have to live with. Like it's part of the medium now. Um, it's part of the medium as long as we continue to not take preservation for it as seriously as we maybe should. Well said, well said. 
And with that, let's preserve our thoughts on Elden Ring with a three-word review. My three-word review for this game is a formula perfected. I played Dark Souls twice, once for fun and once for the cast. I only made it 10 or 15 hours into the game in either run. There were things I really enjoyed about the game, but certain game design decisions made sure the game did, did not stick. I thought back then it was simply because the game was too difficult but Elden Ring showed me otherwise. I loved the combat mechanics of the series, uh, the way the timing and direction played such a role in the tactical decisions. In other games, a sword might deal slashing damage, whereas a spear deals thrusting damage, but in Dark Souls, a sword would slash and a spear would thrust. It wasn't something I've seen done so well in a game before. Elden Ring keeps the good parts of Dark Souls, but the open-world nature of the game short-circuited my complaints with Dark Souls. Instead of having to have frustratingly hard boss gates that keep you from progressing, Elden Ring offers a huge variety of side paths and hidden trails to explore. The game is absurdly full of things, dungeons, fights, secrets, and mysteries, and its piecemeal storytelling pays off in spades. Whenever a boss was too frustrating, you simply mess around somewhere else until you got more powerful and the fight becomes easier. I was able to enjoy the Deep Souls combat, plus ride around on a double jumping horse. (laughs) Elden Ring was a joy to play and replay and I'm certain I haven't visited the lands between for the last time. Agreed. Me neither. My three-word review is uncompromised, unmatched, unforgettable. In the past decade, the open-world game has become one of the most popular genres in AAA game dev. When I first heard that Elden Ring would be taking the FromSoft formula of tightly designed action RPGs into an open world, I was, admittedly, a bit skeptical. I could not have been more wrong. Elden Ring stayed true to the series while pivoting to an exceedingly popular genre, giving up surprisingly little in the process, not compromising with this new iteration, but refining and augmenting the formula. Almost all of my favorite aspects of the Soulsborne games are present, and most are done better here than ever. It's unmatched in the industry, or by its predecessors. It's clear to me that Elden Ring is the product of decades worth of lessons, and it never could have happened without the Souls games, Bloodborne, and Sekiro. It's truly an apotheosis of the studio's efforts in the form of a gigantic open-world game. And like Breath of the Wild's Hyrule before it, the lands between provide an unforgettable experience that I've already enjoyed revisiting and I'm sure I'll continue to revisit for years to come. An uncompromised, unmatched, and unforgettable experience. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com, or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. Take care, and let us put these foolish ambitions to rest.
Now, I feel like Margit is the the boss of Elden Ring. Like, he's not the best boss or the most difficult boss, but he is, like, the bossiest boss. <laughs> he's the most... Um, he's the boss that I think in the inevitable New Game Plus run I will do of this at some point is going to get the biggest comeuppance ever. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, it's so funny because obviously a very intimidating figure that will kick your ass the first time you, you come across him. And then, like, you know, even us revisiting and just playing New Game made short work of. And I love that. You know, the knowledge compresses space thing. I think that was maybe my three-word review for Dark Souls. It holds true, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one thing I wish we talked more about, and I know we don't we don't have time to get into it too much, is all of the various, like, themes and, and things going around in this game, like how you have this destiny that you're meant to follow, but it's actually in deviating that the game's fun is found. How there's, like, this order who has faith, but the gods don't reward faith at all. Now, there's all of this symbolism with the trees, with roots, with death and rebirth, and um, the removal of death. Like, should death exist at all? When, you know, the endings get into all of these, like, really weird metaphysical, philosophical questions, and it just strikes me that, like, these this game, especially its endings, don't have the feel of a game that was focus-tested to hell and back, despite the fact that it's like <laughs> one of the most successful games of the year, right? Like, and I love that about mm -hmm. it. It has some personality to it, whereas often focus groups are there to strip a game of personality. Yeah, and like, it, it's it's so funny to me, like having recently looked at like some of the uh, Steam achievement stats and like and things like that is the most popular ending. I don't know if you, you didn't get to the ending of the game, correct? The Age of Stars is the most popular ending. Yes, yes, you're you're absolutely right. So I thought that was interesting because to me, like that's not the. I don't know if that's the. I don't think that's the good ending. Like I don't know if there is a good ending, but it's definitely like a controversial ending. It's basically saying like we're cutting ourselves off from the greater will. We're going away from the gods. The gods can go fuck themselves. Um, we're going to figure out, like, the age of loneliness, the age of, you know, uncommunicated, or the age of not being communicated with by the gods. And, like, I think that's very interesting that that's the way that most players wanted to go. And I think it's because that's just because that's the quest that brought you to the most interesting places in Elden Ring. <laughs> It was an interesting quest line. Um, I think, too, that a common trope for both the Dark Souls and, you know, games like Hollow Knight 2 is, like, the quote-unquote easy ending is, like, status quo. Right. Okay, things are back to how they were before you started playing, so nothing you did matters. Whereas, like, a... Ending like this, the Age of Stars is like, well, things have changed now. Things are and very different And we don't know if that's now. bad yeah. or good. Yeah, but it's like, well, your actions mattered in a way that they wouldn't if you chose the other ending. Yeah. I think it's the second, it's probably the second most difficult ending to get, second only to the Chaos Flame ending, the 
the one where you basically embrace the flames of chaos and blow the Erd tree to smithereens and it just pours forth fire and death, which I, I'm pretty sure is like my canonical read is that that is the setup to Dark Souls. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with flame came disparity, right? And then all of a sudden Dark Souls starts. <laughs> well, there you go. It's all one universe. Uh, yeah, sure. It, it, I mean, every every game has featured a version of the Moonlight Greatsword, so there is standing <laughs> for that. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier in this podcast that this was the game that had me upgrade my PC. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fun part is that this was not upgraded before I started playing the game. Uh-huh. Um, I... <laughs> I originally started this on my old laptop, which I think had a 1050 uh, NVIDIA card or something. GeForce, yeah, something like that. that, Um, Very not suited for this game, I will say, in many different ways. Um, But when I started it up, I was able to squeak by on the lowest resolution, some weird thing like 1200 by 700, um, (laughs) and get like 40 or 50 frames a second. But there were certain um, graphical artifacts that led me to believe it was not the best experience. Um, when you first get out into Limegrave, I fought the guy in the horse a couple of times. I tried. I'm like, well, clearly I'm not supposed to do this yet. But he was there and he was visible. Mm-hmm. Which turns out to be not the case for everything else in the game. I was going to say um, that's a that's a loaded statement right there. Visible. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean by he was visible? <laughs> so after I died a couple of times to the tree knight, I went off to the swamp, uh, to the east of the starting location. Went through some you know villages where all the enemies were invisible. I could see where they were based off of the ripples in the swamp water around them. And I kind of thought, well, this is just a magical invisibility bog because, you know, it's FromSoft. A bog full of invisible enemies. Sure, that does track with FromSoft. <laughs> I know, you know, they're just trying to, they're, they're trying to, it's difficult games. I guess everything's just invisible here. Uh, so I was eventually able to clear out that tiny ruins near the bog um, and continued on with the game when eventually I realized that things aren't supposed to be invisible. Um, (laughs) The way they do their graphics coding is that the elite enemies and the bosses would show up, but the grunts would be invisible, except their shadows and, like, I don't know why, but, like, the grass shaders and the water shaders worked perfectly for all these enemies. The character models for grunts just didn't load in. They did not load in. I was like the blind <laughs> kung fu monk trying to take out enemies I could not see. Oh my god. So I got through about three or four hours of that and I figured like okay, it's time to upgrade. The demigods are telling me something. Did did you actually how did you figure out that the invisible enemies thing was not supposed to be the intended experience? <laughs> No, I really thought it was an invisible enemies bog because that's from soft and they just say, you know, deal with it. Um, it was when I got to the cast, the, uh, the first gate mm. where you get torrent and everything. And 
I realized I could see the night off in the distance, but I couldn't see anybody else until I got within five feet of them. Mm, and then you realized thought, this is just pop-in. If it's a bog, I feel like it could make sense because it's a bog and strange things happen there. But this is just a little castle town, little ruins over here. These aren't... There's no magic here. It's, it's, there's no bog. There's no swamp. Well... I'm glad you learned that lesson, and I'm glad that um, the greatest game of 2022 was the reason you upgraded your PC. <laughs> Worth it. Worth it. <laughs>